Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. A little later on today, Tantalus Lab CEO Dan Sutton, he's going to join the show to discuss the high attrition rates of cannabis CEOs here in Canada, as well as the exploding market for seniors. And we're going to dive into the debate about whether or not there is a shortage of cannabis products. And then after that, BIV's weekly technology panel featuring Glue Technology Society's Linda Fawkes and Electron Communications' Matthew Klippenstein going to dig into the latest industry news, including the bumpy road ahead for ride hailing in BC. Folks, it looks as if we've got another delay ahead of us here. And we're going to dive into Uber's efforts to launch financial services, Google's acquisition of Fitbit, and even more than that. So stick around. But before we get to all of those great segments, I do want to mention that tomorrow, November 6th at UBC Robson Square, we're going to host BIV post-election talks with our editor-in-chief Kirk LaPointe moderating. Panelists include Mario Canseco, president of Research Co., and Brittany Kerr from Earnscliff Strategy Group as well as Scott Lamb from the Conservative Party of Canada. I think a lot to discuss, uh, maybe the future of Andrew Scheer, as well as what the Green Party is going to do now with the resignation of Elizabeth May. You don't want to miss that. Then on November 13th at Fairmont Waterfront, it is BIV's BC CEO Awards. You can find more details about all those events at BIV.com slash events. Now let's go ahead and speak to Dan Sutton for the latest cannabis industry news. And back for his regular segment here on BIV Today, it's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Glad to be here. Okay, so we were talking about this a few weeks off air, about there's this notable attrition rate of cannabis CEOs this year. I think CanTrust, Canopy Growth, notable examples, but those guys, they're gone for different reasons, though. But I'm wondering, you know, are, are there other executives that are departing, is this indicative of maybe a nascent industry or is there just something else going on here? Tyler, are you telling me I should be worried? <laughs> um, of course, you're very secure. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> well, hoping so. And, and, and never too secure. I think everyone's always got to be on their toes in this business to borrow your phrase. Um, and ultimately, as long as CEOs continue to deliver value for shareholders, they're going to have security in their position. Now, the reality is that when you're a publicly traded company, that value has to be delivered quarter over quarter. And sometimes the longer game vision of a CEO doesn't really get the chance to play out. Now, it is true that I think eight or nine CEOs that I'm aware of, of large leading cannabis companies, have either been fired or left in the last six months. And it's probably a symptom of broader market disarray. There's companies that are missing targets, that are resetting their horizons, that are are resetting their guidance and their vision on how uh, quickly they're going to be able to deploy into a market that has grown a lot more slowly than people have anticipated. Um, But I think it's, it's really interesting because firing a CEO in cannabis is easy. Hiring a CEO in cannabis is very difficult. Now, who do you go to at this point? The skill sets are narrow. And 
you know, having been in this industry for seven years, I think it's actually fair to me to say that I'm probably the most experienced legal cannabis CEO feasibly on earth at this point. Sure. <laughs> Pretty cool. By default, it's a feature of just having hung around for long enough. It's on your resume. You got it. It's on my resume. And I look around at the skill sets that would be necessary to come in and successfully fill a CEO position. You have to have a great working understanding of agriculture. You have to have a great working understanding of technology. Brand pieces are really critical in the market now more than ever. So you have to be kind of a marketing focused CEO. And so there's really a diversity of skill sets that if you come from a bank or if you come from a consumer packaged goods company, you might be lacking in some of those other areas. So I think the fact remains that the skill set necessary to be a CEO in cannabis is rare. And for those that aren't performing ultimately quarter over quarter, month over month, they are in a risky position. Well, yeah, I want to go back to something you mentioned, though, is maybe some of the short term thinking that takes over for investors' minds. Is that maybe making you reevaluate what you want to do with Tantalus Labs going down the road with maybe a possible IPO? What are your thoughts if I can kind of dig into your own uh, thought process here? Well, spoiler alert, we're not particularly thirsty for an IPO at this time. Yeah. Uh, the cannabis market has probably receded 50 or 60% over the course of the last eight months. Uh, so tough time for resetting investor expectations and appreciating that this market is not going to be a magical lottery, a golden ticket of sorts where people just automatically make a lot of money and stocks go up forever. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really critical, I think, in life and in business to take a long-term view. If we all thought about how to create value in our lives and the lives of our communities over a 10 year time horizon, it would completely, you know, shift the perspective of, of how we create that value and what investments we make with our finances, what investments we make with our time. Uh, Patagonia is a great example. They preach a hundred year time horizon. They think about what they're going to do to leave a legacy for a hundred years. And I'm sure that doesn't always play out in the, in the practice of their business, but they are a very successful company. And so that's maybe a great reframing that we should all look at in a, in a time of immediacy and a time of instant gratification that we live in, you know, in social media and, and in digital media in general. Uh, how do we create value on a, let's say, 10-year time horizon, I think is a great perspective for, for business people and for normal human beings. Okay. Well, maybe shifting gears a little bit with regards to where the market's at. So we had new StatsCan data that was showing that uh, seniors, those 65 and up, uh, they are the fastest growing market. I don't think that's a huge surprise if you kind of think about the math here, because they're saying, I, I believe the numbers are 27% of those age 65 and older, they are new users. And so that dwarfs the numbers that we're seeing in other age cohorts here. But are companies recognizing maybe the potential behind this particular age group with regards to seizing on them as a market? Well, it's a good segue because long-term planning definitely plays out when marketing to a demographic that's probably not as exposed to digital media or you know the more traditional mechanisms you might use to, to attract an audience of, of younger and more digitally connected people. Um, but I, I think it's really interesting and I think it's a function of uh, this demographic having essentially been lied to. They've been told their whole lives that cannabis will rot your brain, that cannabis is dangerous, that cannabis has a huge risk of addiction, that cannabis has a, a, a slew of side effects. And that ultimately, you know, traditional medicine, uh, pharmaceuticals, that's that's the safe way. That's the Western way. That's the way that's approved by your doctor. Now, uh, they're beginning to understand that the risk profile for cannabis relative to things like Advil or Tylenol is actually far lower, especially considering substitution effect for other uh, pharmaceutical drugs that that demographic would be more inclined to take. And uh, ultimately, you know, 
being a senior, you're probably subject to aches and pains at the very least. You're probably subject to uh, sort of minor frustrations and, and muscular skeletal issues, arthritis, all these things where cannabis has really demonstrated, you know, at least anecdotally, we have to keep saying that because there is no clinical trial data, but there's a huge swath of thousands and thousands, millions of seniors across the world that are using cannabis successfully for uh, age-related, you know, sort of body degradation, <laughs> generalized ailments. Uh, and yeah, it's it seems to be functional for a wide, a wide swath of these use cases. And so as they go through this discovery phase, they're going to realize, okay, this isn't the big bad drug that I was told that it was. And I think that that's hugely positive. So maybe it's just your gut instinct at this point. Maybe it's just anecdotal. But how do you think this cohort is discovering cannabis at this point? Is it just walking into random stores? Are they doing their research? What do you think? Well, cannabis has a magic trait that it it piques people's curiosity. Uh, When you're exposed to it, either through friends and family or through word of mouth, it's really easy to sort of be interested. Uh, And when you talk to a cannabis user, especially a new cannabis user that's found a consumption method or, or a modality that's working really well for them, these are some of the most evangelical people uh, that you can find about products. And so I think it might be as simple as talking to friends and family. Maybe they have a younger family that's saying, hey, grandma, your your hands are aching. You should try this. And uh, as soon as they try it once, they're able to make a judgment call pretty quickly. And it, it seems as though there's uh, a, a pretty rapid adoption rate once people actually get the product in their hands. And speaking of getting a product in their hands, uh, Cannabis Council of Canada, they say that the worst of the supply crunch is over at this point. This is a huge industry group here, I I think the largest in the country. Uh, What is your take on this? Because we've talked a lot about the shortages going on throughout this industry. Is the worst of it over? Keeping in mind, this is an agricultural industry, which could be prone to hills and valleys. Yeah, fair. And I think greenhouses probably mitigate a lot of that risk. It's a lot easier to produce in greenhouses than it is in field crops. So if you're relying exclusively on field crops in Canada, we might see more of a kind of farming ebb and flow, a more natural farming ebb and flow of of supply gluts and shortages. I would agree that it appears as though the supply shortages have turned into now supply gluts. All of the large distribution centers across Canada, the the provincial distribution boards are well stocked with cannabis at this point. And I think especially at the commodity grade, like if you're targeting a price sensitive consumer, you're going to see those prices continue to drop across the board. We've we've already seen a lot of price drops in places like Alberta and Ontario. And uh, in that kind of mid tier of product that will continue to be undersupplied. Tantalus Labs deal, deals more with a quality-sensitive user, someone who's looking for a differentiated experience, you know, exceptional cannabis, BC bud, high-purity product, and that continues to be relatively undersupplied, or in that we aren't having the same sell-through complications as some of the larger firms. Uh, but if you are a consumer who likes to buy cannabis for the lowest price possible, your your days are are coming. They're, they're getting better and better, uh, because a lot of these companies are realizing that the margins that they they were expecting are going to become uh, tighter, obviously, with with competition. And there's a lot of large greenhouse infrastructure that's coming online. Actually, uh, a, a large facility in Ontario that's run by Afria, a Double Diamond, which I believe is a million square feet, was just licensed last week. So that in and of itself could probably supply the entire Canadian market. Interesting. Yeah, what we're going to see is the large macro LPs are going to start cannibalizing each other. Okay. So what do you think the ultimate outcome is going to be for consumers uh, with regards to those LPs, as you say, cannibalizing each other? Well, ready access to low cost 
probably commodity grade product. So that's probably positive, especially for people who don't have a huge amount of expendable income. I think it'll be good for medical cannabis users that need to consume a substantial amount of volume. Um, but yeah, I would be very suspect of the quarterly projections leading out a year. We've already seen, you know, most of these large companies have to revise their projections really substantially. Uh, and ultimately, it's, it's not going to be smooth sailing for anybody who's competing on price and price alone. So is a commodity-grade product your euphemism for, say, I don't know, the Budweiser of cannabis? Is that kind of what you're referring to? Budweiser would be a fair analogy. Yeah, mass-produced, not particularly remarkable, but price-competitive. Fair enough. Excellent. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tanless Labs. Stay with us. The BIV Technology Panel joins us right after this. And joining us today to discuss the latest industry news and technology, it's Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Matthew Klippenstein, consultant at Electron Communications. Linda, Matthew, thank you both for joining us on the show. Hi, Tyler. Thanks again for having us, Tyler. Okay, so I'll just promote BIV a little bit here. On our front page this week, we are outlining all the hurdles ahead for BC ride hailing. And we just found out at the very end of last week that we've been hit by yet another potential delay. And it looks uncertain about whether or not we'll actually get it in time for the holidays. Uh, Linda, I don't know, what is most concerning for you right now with regards to the potential of ever getting ride hailing here in British Columbia? My concern is that we're not going to get ride hailing as we see it across the country. And across the country, we see savings over taxi rates of roughly 20 to 40 percent. We're not I'm concerned we won't see that here. I'm going to have the ability to stand on the side of the street or use an app and get a a ride, but it's going to be a taxi ride. It's going to be also affected by surge pricing, which is going to be confusing for me. And I'm still going to be stuck with those municipal boundaries. I'm not going to be able to get a ride in Vancouver and be taken to Squamish or Horseshoe Bay or whatever. Um, I'm going to have to be stuck within the municipality of Vancouver. So my final concern is that it's going to take the municipalities a long time to get on board. And, and while they're getting on board, I'm not going to know. Can I get in this car and go to where I need to go? Or am I, did I just call a car and they arrived and the guy's going to tell me, sorry, I can't take you there? So it's a mess. It's going to be a mess for quite a few years, it sounds like. And that is what I'm concerned about. Yeah, all that said, though, Matthew, are you still going to use it? Just for the convenience factor? I'll definitely give it a shot. Yeah. Now, uh, being being located within a couple blocks of a SkyTrain station, our family is very fortunate to be able to use public transit a lot. But I certainly will want to try it out and see what it's like. Uh, I expect that I will load the apps, most likely Cater, uh, the local uh, or BC-based startup that we'd mentioned earlier, because they will apparently have vehicles outside just the lower mainland, but on the island and yeah. uh, other regions. Very important for that network effect. And I... Oh, sorry. Um, and uh, I'm, I am quite intrigued by uh, the, the fact that we're discussing it now just as TransLink is discussing job action. Right. Um, now, at some point, we will have ride hailing in some form. Uh, during those periods, there's going to be a high demand for mobility, which ride hailing can help, uh, you know, help people manage with, people who are dependent on transit, which is a lot of people here. And if there are these requirements, not just the uh, drop-off pickup locations, but also Class 4 licenses, you might not actually be able to surge supply in terms of being able to get a bunch of people who, for whatever reason, might be able to you know, use their car to drive folks around, earn a little bit of money. If they need a Class 4 license and some of these other restrictions, then you kind of flatline it. It does become just 
um, a, a cab service by another name. I mean, it's a good it's a good thing that we're going to have. Uh, it looks like Lyft first, but a service mm. in Vancouver or in the Lower Mainland that we can rate the drivers. We can have some power as a rider over the experience. I can't tell you the number of times I've ordered a car to the north to North Shore and have you know I'm going to the airport and it's like, where's the car? I ordered it the night before. Sorry, it's not going to be there. It's going to mm. be forty five minutes late. Too bad it's not coming at all. You know, and so it, it's going to be nice to have an app based system for rating this experience. So I'm hoping that's going to make things better Mm -hmm. uh, for us as riders. But I think for me, it's going to make me um, use the car to go service that I'm part of more or moto moto or whatever one I decide to use. I'm going to try to ramp that up a little bit more. But it's also going to require me to read Tyler's articles in business in Vancouver to figure out (laughs) <laughs> where this service is going to be offered and yes. when we're allowed to use it. it. It's kind of confusing right now. So that's mm-hmm. unfortunate. Uh, while we're talking about ride hailing, uh, we do know that Uber is launching a new division called Uber Money. I guess maybe, Linda, do you think there's potential that they'll have better luck than, I don't know, trying to launch their own cryptocurrency, for example, with these financial services that they're going to be offering, like, say, an electronic wallet, uh, etc.? Yeah, I think this is a really smart move. Uh, the lockup for uh, Uber stock ends tomorrow. It's a 180-day period wait after the IPO. Tomorrow, the shares mm-hmm. can start to be dumped into the market. Uber is trying to sell a story of how they're going to get out of this massive billions of dollars of debt they're in. And for them, moving over to a debit card, first focused on drivers, is really smart, I think. Mm-hmm. It's going to keep the money in the Uber ecosystem. They're going to be able to pay drivers straight into the, the effectively the digital wallet right away so drivers can get their money right away. It's also going to allow drivers to pay for gas with discounts. Mm-hmm. And you can see all where all the reward um, uh actions are going to happen from using this card. And it's not a huge leap to get over to the eating side or the rider side of the Mm -hmm. world to have riders and eaters using Uber Eats and hailing Mm -hmm. Uber cars using an Uber debit card. And what it brings to Uber is the interchange fee. Every time someone Mm -hmm. uses that card, they get a little hit of money. And that's a profitability stream that I'm sure investors are going to be keeping a close eye on and hoping it's going to get them some money in the door, some very much needed money in the door. Yeah, Matthew, I like I, I think it is kind of fascinating what they are doing here though. How important do you think it is for Uber to diversify their offerings and not relying solely on their flagship ride hailing services? Uh, so yes, as Linda mentioned, they are losing money hand over fist with their current operations. There could be a variety of reasons for that, aggressive expansion and so forth relative lack of pricing power beyond a certain point. If Lyft winds up be, or Cater winds up being cheaper, everyone will course to those guys. Uh, I do think there is a, a high value for them to have this stockpile of money, this, just, uh, this big pot of Scrooge McDuck money just sitting in their accounts, which drivers haven't uh, used yet or haven't pulled out yet. So that having that float, I think, will be very valuable. And although... Um, we're not in the situation in North America where you have lots of cash payments. I think the article that uh, you'd linked us to and some others that I was doing research on indicate that in other countries there is a lot of cash payment, which is a lot of transaction fee, a lot of friction. Uh, if Uber can take that friction out and maybe even you know collect a little bit on the transactions, that is very healthy for the company. It ties people, binds them into the ecosystem. Well, switching gears a little bit, uh, Matthew, what's your take on Google acquiring Fitbit to the tune of $2.1 billion? U.S. Uh, does Apple Watch really need to look behind its back at this point? 
Uh, I don't think Apple uh, needs to, to look behind its back. I think uh, Apple's uh, general role is never to rely on being the majority share of a given market, but to have the premium share, to really own that segment. So I would imagine just as with phones, as, as with tablets, perhaps in five years, um, you know, the Apple Watch's share of the smartwatch market drops from the 50-ish percent it has now to something more like 20%, but they will still be very, uh, very um, uh, profitable. It's very, very, very important for Google to try to make its platform the, the Android, the Wear OS, as they call it. Um, that's, and Google has mentioned they promised not to use the health data for their advertising targeting. Uh, for me, myself, I was actually looking at a Fitbit, uh, I think it was the, the Versa 3, I think it was called, and now I'm a bit concerned uh, not necessarily that, well, Google already knows plenty about me, but uh, for, for one of these privacy reasons, perhaps similar to the Twitter versus Facebook uh, issue that, uh, that has also come up, uh, I would prefer to keep some of my personal data parsed off with a company who makes money off of my, my buying luxury goods as opposed to monetizing me. So, All right. Yeah, and I think it's an interesting move for Google. The Wear OS is obviously an important focus for them. They've, mm-hmm. They invested in Fossil earlier this year, the wearable uh, watch that hasn't yeah. gone anywhere. Um, this investment is interesting for me because it's it's signaling Google's move into what they're calling this ambient computing space where they want to have Google be part of your your life. They want to have Google really be the OS of your life, mm-hmm. right? It's going to be everywhere you need it to be with virtual assistants, mm-hmm. uh, artificial intelligence supporting everything, looking at your wrist for what you need, maybe looking at a device, uh, a screen mm-hmm. hidden somewhere. So this is Google's first move I see really into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to do it with third-party vendors using their Wear OS and building mm-hmm. it out that way. That hasn't worked, obviously. Um, are they going after Apple? Not so much, I don't think. I think Google, I know Google has its own strategy that's quite different from Apple's strategy in bringing their devices into our life. But um, what we worry about for me and what I worry about with Google is not that they're going to be necessarily sharing my data with advertisers and showing me ads that are relevant to me, but what they're doing with the data that they're mm-hmm. collecting. And we know that they have built a really sophisticated AI based on the data we've given them. They're mm-hmm. spending $3 billion a year building out their AI. Um, and so the, the the play at Google has always been to create an AI of our life. And mm-hmm. this kind of data is going to really round out that that health piece. Mm-hmm. And they're investing hugely into health tech and positioning themselves really well in the health tech space. So it's it's an interesting move, and I think we, you know, Google search became ubiquitous quite quickly. Google Health might just do that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just look at all the companies that are seizing on that digital health realm right now. I, look, I, we we cover the local scene here, of course. We are business in Vancouver. Telus is investing big mm-hmm. in this future here, and I think other companies have recognized that. And so it's no surprise that we'd see giants like Google and Apple. Mm-hmm both going big into being able right. to collect this data, and we'll see how they monetize it, hopefully in a responsible way. And, and no shout, shout down to TELUS at all, but I, I'm a TELUS user. They Their email system crashed significantly yeah. in the last hmm. number of months, hmm. consistently and still. Um, and so when I look at a company that can't manage email, hmm. I'm very I'm thinking, hold up, guys, and you think you're going to manage health data in a way that is not hackable, crackable, shareable, stealable? 
I'm not convinced of that. So if I had to choose, am I going to give my health data to Google, Apple, or TELUS? I can tell you who's number three on that list. Sure. I am wearing an Apple watch, so you might know who's number one. (laughs) But the point is we need to be, as consumers, really smart um, and very um, putting pressure on the companies we're going to deal with who are going to take on the burden of respecting our data. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it shouldn't just be that it's a local provider or they're giving you the best deal or it's free. Mm-hmm. You really need to be looking right. carefully at how that data is going to be stored and used and how safe it is. Again, for all my concerns about privacy, I do think there is a wealth of uh, human benefit that we will be able to derive from the data already being collected by the Apple Watch, by other smart uh, smartwatch platforms, uh, with res- with respect to like irregular heartbeats, things like that. Other features that will come into play. It's just that I'd I'd be happy to let many other Canadians and folks around the world contribute to that database rather than myself. Fair enough. <laughs> Uh, guys, uh, we'll keep going with all these tech giants here. Uh, Twitter just announced last week that they're banning political ads. It's interesting. I think it's more of a symbolic move because there's not much of their ad revenue actually coming from these political ads. Uh, do you think that this is just inevitably going to put additional pressure on, say, Facebook to reevaluate what their role is, which they've come under a lot of heat for not really being willing to police them or, or clamp down on anything that would be misleading. What's your take on this, Matthew? Uh, my take is that this is, a, this is a strategic and clever move, a savvy move by Twitter to get itself out of the way of this fight, this growing uh, intense uh, pressure and uh, vigilance on Facebook by government uh, legislators and uh, concerned uh, citizens around the world about fake news, about false information, about uh, you know terrible memes getting getting spread irresponsibly. Uh, it is something of a strategy credit in the sense that since Twitter didn't it didn't really affect Twitter's bottom line. It uh, it's like it's an easy thing to do. You can make yourself look like an angel and then kind of demonize your uh, your opponent. In a similar way, Apple saying that uh, you know we'll never share your data, uh, you know without your consent. It's kind of easy for them to do because that's not how they make their money, but that's kind of exactly how Google makes its money. So um, I think it's a savvy move by Twitter to get itself out of the conversation and then have more of the focus directed uh, at Facebook. Yeah, and I think Aaron Sorkin, of course, said it beautifully in his Mm -hmm. letter uh, to Mark Zuckerberg in the New York Times this week. Last week, was that last week? Um, I think that what we're seeing at Twitter, and I like the way Dorsey said it, you you have to earn your audience in Twitter. You're not going to be able to buy it through ads, Mm -hmm. no matter who you are, especially politicians in times of election. And what we're seeing over at Facebook is the opposite to that. You can buy influence. You can spread false information. And, you know, Sandberg gets up and and she's talking about, well, yes, we're we're going to keep all of the false political ads up there, but you can go to this place to see them all. And and she starts describing the workflow to get over there. And it's Mm -hmm. like, who is ever going to do that? No one is going to do that. We see, and, and as Facebook well knows, knows, as Twitter well knows, what we see in front of us in that split second is what we take away. We are are not a society that's diving deep into much these days. Mm -hmm. So the the Joe Biden paying the Ukrainian government a billion dollars not to look um, into his son obviously is a lie. As as Sorkin noted, that's over Facebook's logo. We have this impression that what we see on these platforms is true. And we don't dive deeper, even though Facebook might give us the tools to do that. And they well know that. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is a 
an important move by, by Twitter. Yeah, it was a good strategy and business move, but it's important for us, A, to have this conversation mm-hmm. and to show that, that Facebook needs to do better. It's not, it's not an option to just spread the lies of the world. They need to, over their logo, be protecting us from all that junk so we can you know, hopefully enjoy and benefit from our experience on their platform. Mm-hmm. Well, one last giant for us to tackle here, Amazon. I, I guess holidays are approaching soon, and uh, I guess Amazon's own version of elves would be robots this year, or uh, collaborative robots called cobots. Um, there, there's some serious consequences, though, I think, for replacing human workforces with these automated versions here. I I mean, are we aware enough, Matthew, from your perspective about kind of the the human impact that's going on with continued automation, especially as Amazon is just really boosting its investment in this? Yes. So um, Amazon is hiring fewer workers uh, for the holiday rush uh, this year than it has in past years. And part of the reason is that it, as it has scaled up its automation with, uh, with robots, with artificial intelligence, then it doesn't need as many humans uh, to fulfill orders. Uh, in many respects, that you could say is a very good thing because the, uh, the working quality, the, the quality of work or um, uh, the quality of labor conditions, perhaps, that uh, Amazon and other fulfillment uh, centers have been uh, criticized for, they do sound uh, like terrible terrible places where uh, you would desire people to be able to move into, you know, higher income, higher, uh, higher skill streams. So um, on the one hand, it is good to be able to put robots into places where the human work is not ideal. Uh, on the other hand, it is kind of the, the, the path of history in, in that uh, we, as, as robots, as intelligence gets uh, cheaper, we can deploy them more. You can make the, the fewer human jobs that remain less you know, s- strenuous, less uh, tenuous, and, um, and hopefully uh, the economic advantages you create there will provide employment for others uh, who are otherwise affected. Yeah, we've got, though, I found it interesting that the EU back in 2017 voted down a draft legislation that would tax robots. Bill Gates Mm -hmm. was standing up a few years ago saying we should consider taxing robots. And people are saying, what is a robot? They're they're being, Mm -hmm. you know, back to ambient ambient computing. They're going to kind of be in many places of our lives we don't expect. Mm-hmm. But the EU saying, no, we're not going to do it that way. The, mm-hmm. the intention of the legislation was to tax the robots, bring some money into the social system so we can upskill, mm-hmm. retrain and support those people who are displaced by robots. Mm-hmm. Um, and they felt the EU, who we are sort of our guardians of technology security mm-hmm. on the planet right now, it right. seems, they said, no, we need to find a better way to do that. Right. And so um, we know that Amazon's push into this one-day delivery um, was based on they, their knowledge that their fulfillment centers can get this con- this product out fast. And that mm-hmm. is their, they've got a robotized workforce, right? Mm-hmm. So it is not good that they're dropping from 150,000 seasonal workers to 100,000 in a few short years. And I'm guessing we're going to see a similar drop in the next few short years. Mm-hmm. But um, what are we going to do about that? Amazon's mm-hmm. going to continue to do what it's doing right. as long as it can until someone steps in and says, hold mm-hmm. on, where are all these other people going to go? Where are these jobs going to happen? Right. And the will robots take my job.com will robots take your job.com. Um, that is a great site to go to, to see the future of uh, mm-hmm. perhaps the job you're in or the job your kids are considering going into. Right. I did that when my son was looking at what he would study. Oh. Right. Just to, yeah. accountant maybe not lawyer 
Maybe not. Yeah. Uh, really? Still oh, wow. stuff that maybe uh, will, will haunt our dreams uh, for the years to come. Just I, I think it is an anxiety-producing mm. uh, issue that is persisting here. I guess the best we can hope for, and we just had a federal election here in Canada, and there are some platforms that were heavier on, say, retraining people than other mm-hmm. platforms that we saw available. So it's going to – I think there's going to be a, a mix of private and public sector getting involved with the future of the workforce here. So, guys, we'll leave it off on that. I want to thank you both for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Tyler. That's Linda Fawkes, CEO of Glue Technology Society, and Matthew Klimpenstein, consultant at Electron Communications. And that is it for the show today. I want to thank everyone for listening. In the meantime, get your friends to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Leave a review. That really does help the show out quite a bit. I'm Tyler Orton, and we'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>